It is one thing to ask why Jesus had to die, and it's actually another thing to ask why they killed Jesus. And if you want to get a, a sense of that at a really local level, just read Matthew 21 and 22. Here's a little review. Chapter 21 begins with Jesus' Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna! The crowd shouted, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This was followed by Jesus clearing the temple, turning over tables, telling the religious leaders that they turned his father's house into a den of robbers. This was followed by Jesus cursing a non-fruit-bearing fig tree, which seemed to symbolize God's non-fruit-bearing people. This was followed by the chief priests and elders questioning Jesus' authority in the temple and him responding by questioning them on the authority of his late cousin John the Baptist, whose perspective and ministry had caused so much trouble for them in his life. This was then all of that was followed by a series of three parables of judgment. Jesus seemed to be aiming like a skilled archer squarely between the eyes of the Jewish leadership. The parable of the two sons concludes with Jesus telling religious leaders that prostitutes and tax collectors will be entering the kingdom of God before them. And then the parable of the wicked tenants, which we heard recently, clearly accuses them of rejecting God's prophets and God's son, finally sending them forth with the claim that God is going to bring these wretches to a wretched end. And now this, the parable of the wedding feast. Are you beginning to get a sense of why they wanted to kill Jesus? He was becoming much, much more than a small nuisance. He had grown like a mustard seed into a seriously large threat to some, to them, and also at the same time to others, a serious symbol of God's radical love, welcome, grace, and hope. Jesus is building a case here. Jesus is building a case for judgment, and Jesus is building a case here for grace. And though some parables can seem quite ambiguous, maybe this one does too, he really does want us to see, hear, and feel this one. It's what scholars sometimes call a diaphanous parable. Diaphanous means fine, delicate, thin, sheer, translucent which means this is supposed to be as obvious as a slap in the face. This is supposed to be as obvious as a punch in the gut or perhaps even a warm embrace. It was for those sitting there and standing there listening to him in this very moment. That's why the leaders were wondering if they could get him killed before he went on. And even after, especially if they could figure out a way to kill him. And let's see if we can understand why. Let's see if the parable unlocks any of that for us. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a king who decided to throw a wedding feast for his son. Now notice, right after that, there is a double invitation in verses 3 and 4, which was common in the ancient world. 
The first invitation lets the guests know of the event and calls for an initial response, kind of like a save the date that you might get for a wedding that asks you for a follow-up RSVP. The second invitation lets the guests know everything was ready and it's time, because they didn't have cars, to start making their way to the party. And between the two invitations, guests could both check their schedule and also check around in the community to see who else was going to come to the party and decide if they wanted to be there with them too. And this would factor into their decision in no small way. And their decision to participate or not in the party was no small matter. Because see, the most important commodity in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean world, in this Mediterranean society, was not money, but was honor. It was an honor-shame society. We talked about that Wednesday night. The most important commodity someone could possess was honor. Someone's honor could determine where they worked, who they could marry, who they could start a conversation with, which parties they could attend. Honor determined everything. The amount, or, the amount of honor or glory or worth, and they're all the same word, someone possessed was directly connected to public reputation. In other words, there was no true honor or glory if it wasn't publicly recognized. You could think you were worth everything. You could think you deserved to be honored above anyone. But if it wasn't publicly recognized, it didn't count. And this is important. Because those invited to this party were making a decision that would affect the honor of the host. This kind of feast required an incredible amount of resources and, and planning. So to reject the invitation to such a feast would send a shaming message both to the host and to the community about the host. And to reject this kind of invitation from a king is more than an act of rejection. It's an act of rebellion. So why would they do it? Why on earth would anyone do this? Why would they even consider this? And who are these people who are considering this as well? Well, for years, the church has read this as a kind of allegorical interpretation of salvation history, symbolizing uh, the shift from God's special relationship with the Jewish people to God's special relationship with the global church. And it may be that, but there are some problems with that as well. See, the chronology of this parable and the timeline of salvation history gets a little messy when you think of it like that, because in the parable, the second set of guests are only invited after the first set reject the invitation. Well, some scholars have surmised that the king's plan B was always God's plan A by design. But, but there seems to be something a little off about this. And to understand what's off and how we might interpret it slightly differently, there are a couple of things we need to take note of. First of all, we saw the word chosen in there, which is sometimes translated elect. Now, sometimes what we need to understand is, in Scripture, election is not primarily about individuals getting a special privilege, like salvation. 
But election is about communities being chosen for a special service or responsibility. In other words, to bless all the peoples of the earth. Which might cause some to wonder if the initial honored guests didn't show up because they were also asked to bring less honorable guests with them to the party. We don't know. Number two, we need to get this. Because if, if we don't, we'll miss something really important here that, that can also be harmful. The formation of Jesus' global church was not an exclusion of the Jewish people. But it was an inclusion of all people. The formation of Jesus' global church was not about the exclusion of the Jewish people, but it was about the inclusion of all peoples. And when you combine this understanding, which is a New Testament understanding, with the conflict that Jesus was having specifically with the Jewish leadership, it lends itself to the possibility that the first set of guests were not meant to symbolize the Jewish people, but specifically the Jewish leadership. In fact, while this parable does foreshadow the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, it seems to be very much connected to this present moment in the gospel. The life and ministry of Jesus represents God's great banquet. You see that connection? The life and ministry of Jesus represents God's great banquet going on before their very eyes in that moment. And Jesus was demonstrating this by eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and unclean Gentiles. Jesus had become known as a friend to sinners, eating in their homes, inviting them into his life and ministry. Jesus was healing lepers and he was healing them on the Sabbath. Jesus was blurring lines and crossing lines between insiders and outsiders, the honored and the shamed, the clean and the unclean, the chosen and the unchosen, the beloved and the beguiled. And this might have hit some people a little differently than others. Is it possible for some news to be the very same news and to hit one set of people as good news and another set of people as bad news? We know that it is. And gospel literally means good news. But what the invitation to the party Jesus was throwing in this moment sounded like was anything but good news to these religious leaders. Why? Because it was an assault on everything they'd come to believe about God and their special place in God's plan. And it was an assault on their livelihood, their place in the community. It would be like asking an encyclopedia salesman to donate to Wikipedia, right? It would be like asking the owner of a blockbuster franchise to celebrate the advent of Netflix or Redbox. It would be like asking someone who's made their living on rotary dialed phones or bag phones or even Palm Pilots to join you at an iPhone party. It didn't make sense. See, these people, these religious leaders had cornered the market on honor and shame in this community and Jesus was more than encroaching on their territory. 
fact, what Jesus was doing is he was telling all kinds of people that God's territory was expansive enough to include them too. And for them and many others, this was alarming. Reminds me of something one of my friends uh, once said to me. We were having a little uh, nice discussion about a uh, theological issue, probably Calvinism and Arminianism or something like that. And he responded to me, Jason, sometimes I think we don't worship the same God. We see that among Christians in our country, don't we? The chief priests and elders passionately believed that they and Jesus were representing different gods with different agendas, and to a point, they were right. Like the king in the parable, Jesus had gone out to the highways and byways, to the slums and the brothels, and even to neighborhoods filled with people from other unclean ethnicities to invite them to invite all people to God's great party. The gospel for everyone is one of the most essential and radical parts of the good news of Jesus Christ. Unless we be too hard on the Jewish religious leaders here, we should remember that this is a practice some of Jesus' closest friends continued to struggle with even after the resurrection. This is the biggest problem in the early church. In Galatians, Paul says he had to confront the apostle Peter about this. And in Acts, we get a snapshot of Peter's process of discovery. You may remember that dream in Acts chapter 10. Where Peter is hungry and God puts this banquet out in front of him with all of these animals that are unclean. The Old Testament calls them an abomination because of their uncleanness. In the dream, Peter's hungry and God presents Peter with these unclean animals and says, Take, Peter, eat. This is God's provision for you. No, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything that was unclean. To which God replies, Peter, don't you dare call anything unclean that I have made clean. Now this was incredibly confusing for Peter. Because here in this vision, he's on one side of the table and God's on the other side of the table. And Peter seemed to have scripture and his understanding of scripture and tradition on his side and it seemed like God was on the other. Peter was trying to figure out what this all meant when he woke up and was immediately taken to the house of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile. And the short of the story, you may remember, is that Cornelius and his family believed in Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. And afterward, because he was with them, Peter was criticized. Criticized by other Jewish Christians for even eating in the house of a Gentile. He was unclean. And Peter responded to them by recounting the story of this miraculous dream, going over the details and telling them about then how he went to Cornelius. And Cornelius obviously received the Holy Spirit and his whole family did. And Peter said, I know the scriptures and I know what we say about them in the tradition. But he testified then that what he was learning from God was that he shouldn't call anything unclean that God has made clean. 
If God wants to give them the Holy Spirit, Peter said, who am I to argue with that? Peter was learning what Jesus had been trying to teach him for quite some time. To not call anything or anyone unclean that God loves and has made clean. And by the way, we're still learning that too. And while we're learning, God continues to go out to the places we least expect, passing out invitations to the most diverse party ever thrown in the history of the world. And I think that is part of what we're supposed to see here in this parable. And in some ways, I wish it were the end. In many ways, I wish that were the end of the story. In so many ways, I wish this parable had ended only with inclusion and embrace, but instead it ends with this disturbing and strange twist. Did you hear it? It reminds me of an ordination service I attended um, for a fellow staff member at a previous church where I served and the ordination service was in the evening and, and I went to the service and it was a beautiful, meaningful, rich service. And of course, at the end of the service, I'd been sitting in the back and I, I walked toward the front and I, I laid hands on her and it was just a, an incredibly sacred time to be together as a church. And the next morning, I got called into the pastor's office, which was kind of like getting called into the principal's office in the way that I was asked. It seems that after the service that night, someone had called him on the phone and said, is anyone teaching these young pastors how to dress? Apparently not. <laughs> I'd grown up in a smaller church, a little more casual, with an evening service that was a little more casual. And, and if you remember, I had just moved to this church in Dallas from working on a farm in Thailand so something inside of me told me that wearing a nice shirt and jeans to the evening service would be fine. Not so. In fact, at this particular party, at this particular church, my wardrobe served as a symbol to some that I was not prepared. Not prepared. Contrast that with the fact that the first Wednesday night, I came to Second Baptist Church as pastor. I wore a tie and Brian Boyd met me at the door and told me to take that thing off and never do it again. <laughs> you didn't say anything about Sunday. Did See, being prepared can mean different things at different times and different places. And here at this king's wedding feast, it seems to have something to do with what people were wearing which ought to prompt us to pause if we're really paying attention. Because presumably, no one at this party would have had the time to change into new clothes or would have had the resources to go out to a shop and buy new clothes either. Remember, these guests were herded in off the streets. So what's going on here? I think we might get a clue from the early church in a passage in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul is asking people to take off a certain kind of clothing which is wickedness and evil and a lack of generosity, a lack of compassion and things like this. 
And then in verse 12 of that same chapter, Sarah says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves now with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on the clothing of love which binds them all together in perfect unity. New Testament language, not just here but in other places, about spiritual clothing and early Christianity's tendency to picture conversion to Christ as a new set of clothes prompts me to think that Jesus just might be speaking of something a bit more metaphorical here than sports coats and dresses. This may be it. The God's kingdom is one of love, and justice, and truth, and compassion, and kindness, and humility, and holiness, and grace. These are the clothes that we must wear to God's great feast. And if we do, we enhance and expand the life of Christ's great party. But if we don't, if we refuse to put them on, and if we instead choose to show up wearing the clothes of pride and bitterness and intolerance and unforgiveness and meanness and hate, then we have not only shown up ill-prepared for God's party, we have intentionally chosen to disrupt it. And it seems in this parable that if we do that, we may be eventually shown the door. Maybe. God have mercy. God have mercy on us all.